GPS satellite tag tiger sharks at my PhD lab tag, um, they're what's called core habitat use area. It's a technical statistic that you can calculate from telemetry data. It's the size of a billion football fields. Massive. These animals go on multi-thousand mile migrations every year. One, we t- one was tagged off the Bahamas. It swam to Canada and then to Portugal and then back to the Bahamas. So the whole damn North Atlantic Ocean. Right. Uh, and if you protect a bay, that's good that you're protecting it. But if the animal spends 99.9% of its time not there, how much good did you actually do for that species? Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is David Schiffman, an interdisciplinary marine conservation biologist at Arizona State University, interested in the sustainable management of marine and coastal resources, and how the science related to these topics is communicated to stakeholders and the public. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, National Geographic, and Scientific American, and he writes a monthly column in Scuba Diving Magazine. He can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at why Sharks Matter, where he's always happy to answer questions about sharks. And he's here with me to talk about his book, Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. David, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Okay. I want to get the thing you're completely tired of talking about out of the way swiftly first so that we can get onto the wider topic of shark conservation. And I'm afraid I'm going to start with a confession. I only very recently saw the movie Jaws. (laughs) (laughs) I knew of it. I knew the basic plot, but I'd never actually seen it. And the very first thing I did after watching it, literally the credits had just started rolling, uh, was to look online to learn more about actual sharks. And I started searching for science books to read about them. Um, And I got to say, sharks aren't the only things I've done this with. It's not at all unusual for me to watch some kind of like fictional media that incorporates a place or a historical event or animal of some kind, which then leads me to spend quite a shocking amount of time researching the actual place or event or creature (laughs) to see what the space is between the real thing and the fictionalized version of the thing. And In reading your book and learning a little bit more about how sharks are often misunderstood, I sort of wonder, like, is that that a weird thing about me? Do most people not do this? (laughs) I've certainly been known to do that from time to time. But yeah, Jaws certainly uh, leads to a lot of questions about sharks and shark behavior. Do we have any idea how sharks were thought of before Jaws? I sort of knew that Jaws was this like looming thing in the history of the public awareness of sharks. Um, And you talk about it uh, in the book as well. But I'm sort of curious as to how we know this and how the PR for sharks was before the movie. Yeah. So Jaws totally transformed the way much of the world thinks about sharks. So dramatically that in the public policy, peer-reviewed scientific literature, we actually have something called the Jaws effect to talk about the impact of fictional things on real-world policy preferences. But before Jaws, most people didn't really think about sharks. Surfers certainly knew about them. Fishermen certainly knew about them. But most people who just went to the beach or went swimming in the ocean, this wasn't a worry. It wasn't a concern. It was not even a thought in the back of their mind. And Jaws very much brought it to the forefront of people's attention. The only other fictional movie that has so dramatically changed people's minds uh, about such things 
is, and, and changed and shaped how people perceive a, a real world topic is Jurassic Park. If I ask you to visualize a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you think of the Tyrannosaurus Rex from Jurassic Park, even though we know that's not what they look like or how they behave. So Spielberg has a lot to answer for here. Oh, he's done it twice. I hadn't even made that connection that Spielberg was both. <laughs> I mean, as you touch on in the book, there's a lot of fear about sharks. So why yeah. are we so afraid of them? Well, sharks do, and I don't want to minimize this, sharks do occasionally hurt people and very, very rarely kill people. But if they were out to get us, if they were monsters, if they were evil, if, they were, if we were on their menu, a lot more people would be hurt by sharks than really are. Uh, in, a, in a typical year um, in the United States, more people are killed by flower pots falling on their heads from above as they walk down a city street than are killed by sharks. A lot more people are killed falling off cliffs while trying to take selfies of the beautiful scenery behind them than are killed by sharks. So this is just not something you need to worry about, but it's, it's juicy media coverage. When uh, There's a saying in some flavors of journalism that if it bleeds, it leads. And sharks biting people anywhere in the world is headline news everywhere in the world. We've certainly seen that the last few weeks this summer. I think one of the questions I have about that and why sharks in particular, I mean, there's lots of other predators out there that periodically kill people. Um, like lions is a good one. I did a very quick mm -hmm. Google search in preparing um, for this uh, conversation after reading the book, just out of curiosity. And the best I can tell with that Googling was lions kill an estimated 200 people per year. While I think in the book, you say that sharks kill about 10. So it feels like maybe we should be more afraid of lions than sharks, but I don't think I've ever heard of uh, anyone getting killed by a lion. <laughs> Oh, here in the U.S., we don't have to worry about lions in our backyard as much. Uh, certainly in some parts of the world, there's a, a healthy respect for, for wild, predatory big cats. Uh, but yeah, this is just humans are hardwired to be afraid of things with big teeth that eat them. It's how we survive this long. Uh, so it makes sense that there's some fear here, but it's really relative to the actual risk, relative to the actual danger. It's significantly overblown in ways that have real world impacts on conservation and management policy for endangered species. Yeah, I mean, I even look at, um, I worked at a very isolated part in a very isolated part of the Rocky Mountains for a couple of summers when I was in high school, um, a place in the Rockies where there are lots of cougars and bears. And one of the things you realize very quickly when you work and live in those areas is the average person who's visiting those spaces, they get kind of dumb around bears. Um, and if you look at the numbers, actually, there, I mean, there's fewer bear attacks than shark attacks, but not by a lot. Um, and, you know, you don't have that same kind of fear around bears. So there seems to be something, and it might be the Jaws effect, or it might be the water or the sort of more alien kind of nature of sharks to us, but it definitely feels like the fear of sharks is highly disproportional to the actual danger that they, yeah. uh, that they present to humans. That's, de that's definitely measurably the case. Uh, and I don't know exactly why, but if some of it is certainly this fear mongering, fear mongering popular press coverage. Uh, a staggering statistic about that that I that one of my colleagues found 
was they looked at how shark biting people is portrayed in uh, the, the media in Australia. When you hear a shark attack, and this is audio, so you can't see I'm doing sarcastic air quotes, but I am, I promise. Uh, when you hear shark attack, you picture Jaws. You picture this large, monstrous animal stalking the beach and killing people because it's evil and bad, uh, with very much on purpose, very much to be mean and cruel and evil. But in a third of reported shark attacks in Australia, the shark did not physically touch the human at all. It swam near them in a way the human thought was threatening. And that's headline news everywhere in the world. When that, oh my God, there was another shark attack in Australia. That's really interesting. So sometimes when you see shark attack, what it actually means is shark spotted near person. Yes. And if you've ever been in the ocean, there was a shark not that far from you and it knew you were there. They remember how amazing their senses of, of smell and other senses are. You probably didn't know it was there and it didn't bother you and you had a lovely day at the beach. That's a much more typical encounter. Very good piece of information to people remember when they're, for people to remember when they're reading headlines is uh, a lot of it is not actually emblematic of what the facts on the ground were, or as it were, facts in the water. <laughs> so I want to talk about shark conservation, um, yes. and I, which is forms really the bulk of what you talk about in the book. Um, so. I guess probably the best place to start is um, trying to better understand what sharks' impact on their current ecosystem is. And when I say sharks, I think most people uh, immediately go to uh, the old Jaws great white shark because that's kind of our our sort of visual default image of shark. But obviously, a shark is not one animal. There are a large number of different species of sharks out there. Yeah, there are 536 recognized species of sharks at the moment, uh, but there's a new species of shark, gate, ray, or chimera, shark relatives, discovered on average somewhere in the world about every two weeks. So there's a lot still left to discover. And these animals range hugely in size, shape, habitat, behavior. The smallest is about the size of your forearm. The largest is the size of a school bus. So they have an enormous number of ways that they impact the ecosystem. But generally speaking, Predators are important in the healthy structure and function of a food web. And when we're talking about the ocean, that's a, that's a food web that provides billions of humans with food. So we want the ocean to be healthy. I'm assuming that all of these different sharks have their own niches in their own ecosystems, that there's not a kind of typical shark role uh, that it falls into. Correct. Yeah. And even not all sharks are the top of the food chain of I always show this when I give my, my talks to museums or schools, that there are pictures of birds eating sharks, of, of a crocodile taking out a big bull shark, orcas famously uh, take out great white sharks. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of different roles. There are some sharks, uh, like tiger sharks, that can, their teeth are designed like can openers, can openers. They can pop open the shell of a sea turtle. There are some species of sharks uh, that eat uh, all kinds of stuff. So do we so have enormous diversity and ecological role? Sorry. Oh, no worries. So do we have any um, solid examples in the shark world about what can happen when a shark gets pulled out of that ecosystem and what kinds of bad things can happen there? Yeah. So we know from other examples 
uh, throughout wildlife biology and ecology that predators are disproportionately important in the healthy structure and function of an ecosystem. It's called a top-down control. Basically, the, the, the first thing that happens when you lose predators is called predation release. That's the numbers of prey that were previously kept in check by predators just explode. And then there's not enough food for all of them and there's not enough habitat for all of them. So they get sick and they eat things they wouldn't otherwise eat. They overgraze their own food. Uh, where I'm from in Western Pennsylvania, we used to have wolves and we killed all the wolves. And now there are too many deer and the deer are malnourished and the deer are sick and they go into places they wouldn't otherwise go like backyard um, and they spread things like Lyme disease to us. So that's predation release, prey populations growing out of control. That can ripple further through the food chain. And then that's called a trophic cascade. Uh, the classic example of this is with sea otters. Uh, sea otters, if you picture a sea otter, often what you picture is them sitting, floating on their back, uh, and they have a cute little sea urchin on their tummy that they hit with rocks. Uh, sea, sea otters do eat sea urchins. And when you lose sea otters, the sea urchin populations grow out of control. And they, they overgraze. And one of the things they overgraze is kelp, those beautiful giant seaweeds that form three-dimensional kelp forests that hundreds of species of animals rely on as a home. And the, the urchins, when they explode, they destroy the whole kelp forest. So even though otters don't relate to the, the kelp forest directly, when you lose otters, the whole kelp forest gets destroyed because of these ripple effects through the food chain. So while we don't necessarily have a precise example of where we know the change in shark behavior or a lessening of sharks has done this. We've got a lot of examples, it sounds like, of places where predators in a similar position to sharks can cause quite a bit of chaos. Yes, absolutely. It, it's extremely difficult to predict what will happen when you start messing with the food web, but it's almost always wildly unpredictable, uh, something that you would never have expected, and it's almost always bad. So I want to talk um, a bit about the biggest threats to sharks, um, because yeah. uh, this was one of the most interesting parts of the book I found. But bef just before we get to that, um, I want to you to talk a little bit about the challenge of understanding how many sharks there actually are and whether or not the numbers that we have are accurate good numbers, bad numbers? Because um, that was also something that you dug into the book, which I had never really thought about. Um, I see on Wikipedia when I look up great white shark or lion, as I did earlier today, uh, and you see that there's a little ranking for them that says uh, vulnerable, endangered, whatever the ranking is. And I had never really thought about who decides that or how that decision is made, or even how do we know, like, are 10 lions good? Are 10,000 lions good? I don't actually know. And I'm assuming that's a really hard question to answer. It is a really hard question to answer. So the group that specifically does those assessments that you're talking about is called the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species. Um, I am a member of the IUCN Red List tuna and billfish team. We're in the process of all the tunas of, and their relatives around the world doing a once every 10 years reassessment of their conservation status. But it's, the red list is very technical. It's very mathy. We have what we call in fishery science world indices of abundance uh, that we use to, to study this. You, you almost never can have an accurate count of how many animals there are in an in, invisible environment like the ocean. 
but we can tell there are more of them than there used to be. There are less of them than there used to be, things like that, because of these ongoing population surveys. If I put out 100 hooks, 100 baited hooks, and I catch 10 great hammerhead sharks, and that's true every year for, for 10 years, then the next year I put out 100 hooks and I catch five great hammerhead sharks, that might mean that half the great hammerhead sharks in the area have declined. Uh, it's more complicated than that, but that's the basic premise. Right. So you're not sort of trying to count everything. You're looking at trends and then big changes in the trends, ups or downs. Yes. That's a lot of where the definitions of endangered, critically endangered, vulnerable that you mentioned earlier, where that comes down to it. It's decline in population over X number of generations. This gets very nasty very quickly, but the thing that I point out in the book um, that I also have my undergraduate students at Georgetown do uh, is you can get trained in how to do red list assessment yourself for free online at conservationtraining.org. And I encourage anyone curious about like, what does vulnerable mean to do that? It's about 20 hours of training that you can do at your own pace. And at the end, you'll have a much deeper understanding of how conservation science works. I also assume that this gets a little bit tricky as well with habitat change and ecosystem change, because probably quite often a decline in numbers in that situation means that there are fewer. But I suppose in a place as big as the ocean with changing climate, changing uh, just uh uh, habitat in the ocean, that it could also mean potentially that they've just relocated to a different spot? Yeah, sometimes seeing fewer hammerhead sharks on your survey means there are fewer hammerhead sharks. Sometimes it means they moved. And sometimes it means you're fishing in a different way and it doesn't really mean anything. Right. <laughs> a lot of details to pick through there. Yes. Science is, uh, science is hard. <laughs> News at 11. Science is hard. Um, so let's talk about the actual threats to sharks. Um, yes. I found it really fascinating that you broke down a whole bunch of possible threats to sharks in the book and talked about the ones that are actual threats and also some that are uh, ideas about what could be threats. But in terms of threats for sharks, maybe Arna's uh, threats there as we thought. I really appreciated the full breakdown to get both the what you see as the actual threats and then the here are the popular conceptions of threats, but mm, we aren't really concerned about that in Shark World. Yeah, that's a big part of the reason why I wanted to write this book, actually, uh, because there's a lot of misunderstandings among the public about what the problems are and also what the solutions to those problems are. And if you don't know what the issue is you're trying to solve, you are unlikely to solve it usefully. And there are a lot of books about sharks, but there's never been one like this before that tries to systematically break down all the evidence for that uh, in a way that is accessible to someone who's not a lawyer or a PhD. Uh, so there are, and I see a lot of nonsense in, in books that are written by people who aren't scientific experts. Certainly they have expertise in other aspects of of shark world, but they, they try to say like, and the best thing you can do to help sharks is don't use any plastic. Uh, plastic is, is not a threat to sharks. That doesn't mean it's not a threat to other things. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try to use less plastic, but a lot of books that are written by people who are famous for scuba diving with sharks uh, do not have a factually accurate evidence-based data-driven description of what the problems and their solutions are. 
So what are the biggest problems for sharks? The biggest threat by far is unsustainable overfishing. Uh, that includes targeted fishing for both shark fins, which a lot of people have heard of, and shark meat, which a lot of people have not heard of, even though it's a bigger and, and growing threat. Um, and it also includes accidentally catching sharks, which is called bycatch. That's when you're, you're trying to catch tuna and you accidentally catch sharks and sea turtles that are near the tuna. Uh, bycatch is what the, the dolphin-safe tuna movement in the 1990s was about. Uh, that was dolphin bycatch rather than shark bycatch. But just an example for people who haven't heard that term before. Uh, of the one-third of all known species of sharks and their relatives that are threatened with extinction, according to the Red List, uh, 100% of those list unsustainable overfishing among their threats. I want to quickly note here that I'm not saying all fishing is bad. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as sustainable fishing. There have been recent claims to that effect in uh, dumpster fires of nonsense, like the Netflix movie Sea Spiracy, uh, but it's absolutely not true. But there definitely are some fishing practices that cause environmental harm to sharks as well as to other things. But sustainable seafood is absolutely a thing that exists. So are a lot of the fishing pressures on sharks, just the sort of general fishing pressures we're seeing in the ocean writ large? Or do sharks have some specific cases or some specific pressures on them that make them a little bit more unique than some of the wider problems we're seeing with overfishing generally? One thing that makes sharks unique in this manner is where baby sharks come from. And that's sharks have what's called a case-selected life history. That means that they have relatively few babies, relatively late in life, relatively infrequently, uh, but each individual baby shark is better able to take care of itself than a planktonic larval tuna is, but there aren't that many of them, and that means numbers cannot bounce back very quickly. Dusky sharks off the east coast of the United States are currently on a 200-plus year rebuilding plan. If we Ooh. leave dusky sharks alone for the next 200 years, their numbers will start to become healthy. We'll start uh, so it to just takes a healthy. really long time. Start, yes. Uh, I personally think it's very optimistic that the government is planning that far into the future. I wish they would plan a, li a little bit farther into the future on some other things too. But the um, generally speaking, the issue that sh that makes sharks uniquely vulnerable to overfishing is they don't have very many babies, which means their numbers just don't bounce back as quickly if they get hammered. So it takes a long time for us to build back shark numbers. Yes. So that's why claims such as what you see uh, in Florida this past week with a shark fishing tournament there, the organizers are saying the shark numbers are growing out of control. This tournament is designed to thin out the herds a little uh, and restore balance. It's nonsense. The shark numbers have not bounced back anywhere near as far as, the, as people are claiming because they scientifically can't. Right. So with the two different types of fishing pressures, we've got the targeted fishing pressures where people are actually going out specifically targeting catching sharks and bycatch where sharks are sort of caught incidentally by accident in the process of trying to catch other things. Are one or the other of those worse or are they relatively equal in contributing to the um, overfishing pressure on sharks? The boundaries between those get fuzzy very quickly mm. uh, because sometimes you're trying to catch tuna, but also you have a permit to catch sharks and also there's a market for sharks. So is that bycatch? Technically, yes. But also you're also kind of trying to catch sharks too. So it's hard to break that down. Got it. So it could be, it, it feel, it's sort of like a big jumble, really. It's just it's a big two jumble. different aspects. 
Got it. Yes. And what but about human recre- killing sharks with fishing gear is the problem. Got it. And what about um, recreational fishing? Target and bycatch generally refers to kind of industrial sized fishing endeavors. Yeah. But obviously, there's a, a big recreational um, aspect to a lot of fishing. Yeah. So I was I did a lot of that work during my PhD, and when I started doing it, a lot of people told me like, "Why are you even looking at recreational fishing? Everyone knows that commercial overfishing is the problem. Uh, a few people going out with a rod and reel catching one shark at a time is not a problem." And I said, "Well, maybe it's enough of a problem that one grad student can spend one semester taking a look." And we found that it's a much bigger problem than a lot of people realize. Um, and the reason why people didn't think it was a problem was because no one had looked to see if it was a problem. And we found uh, some findings in, in South Florida that resulted in the state of Florida changing their fishing laws to protect great hammer, great scalloped and smooth hammerhead sharks in particular, which are, are um, all red list endangered and critically endangered. And the, the, the premise here, how can recreational fishing be a threat? Uh, well, yeah, one fishing, but one commercial fishing boat catches more sharks than one guy with a rod and reel, but we're not talking about one guy with a rod and reel. We're talking about lots of people with rods and reels. And also with recreational fishing, um, the, the economics are reversed with commercial fishing. It's generally believed that commercial fishing can certainly cause population level harms, but can't drive a species to extinction because you won't, uh, it, at a certain point, you, um, it's not worth it to go out and catch the last ones. You'll lose more on fuel than you get from selling what you catch. But with recreational fishing, you're paying to do it. And catching a rarer species is more valuable, so you pay more. So the economic incentives are reversed. So recreational fishing is a threat to some already threatened species. It's not why anything is threatened. Interesting. So there's sort of um, a little bit of like a two phase that can get here. The kind of industrial arm of fishing can move species into a more critically endangered area, which makes them almost more attractive to a certain kind of recreational fisher. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about those two things feeding in as pressures at different points of a species decline. I hadn't really thought about recreational hunting or fishing that way. Yeah, it's a lot of people don't. And a lot of people in my field didn't. Uh, That's the only time I've given a lot of scientific conference presentations. And that's the only time I've ever heard an audible gasp in the audience of pretty serious scientists. And it was when I was presenting just introduction material in my talk, not even uh, my own results, just setting the theme for what I was about to say. And I said, according to NOAA, our federal agency that manages fisheries, more large sharks in the United States last year were killed by recreational anglers than were killed by commercial fisheries. And everyone went, what? That's crazy. And it was in this report that we all read all the time for all our statistics, but no one had ever compared these two tables side by side before. This is a report that has just hundreds of tables in it. And it's about one and a half times as many large sharks are killed by recreational anglers in the U.S. The large shark there is important because most U.S. commercial shark fisheries are for small sharks. But still, it's a staggering statistic and it just blew people's minds. That's really interesting. And I think the idea that uh, we thought it wasn't a problem, so nobody looked at it, and then you don't look at it for long enough, that then it becomes a problem without anybody noticing? Yeah. Interesting. It's always... It goes to show that science has blind spots 
And some of those blind spots are just about, it was fine when last we looked at it. It was totally cool. Yep. That's part of why the Red List does these reassessments every 10 years. Uh, new data becomes available. Things may have gotten worse. Uh, maybe it was bad all along, but no one had looked and now they've looked. Uh, so in the Red List, there's something called genuine change and non-genuine change. Mm-hmm. Genuine change is we've been checking the whole time and now it's actually worse. Whereas non-genuine change is there's new data available. So it was probably bad, this bad the whole time, but we didn't know before. Right. This is brand new data. So we don't have anything to compare it to, but even just this data is bad. Yeah. Got it. I also want to talk a little bit about shark finning. Um, Can you uh, just give us a definition of shark finning really quick? Sure. And the definition here is really important because this is something that a lot of people who are sort of casually aware of ocean conservation issues believe to be the biggest or only threat to sharks. And they use the word wrong in ways that is not helpful. This is, again, if you don't understand what the problem is, you are unlikely to support a useful solution. Shark finning is designed to supply the shark fin trade uh, that is made into shark fin soup is a traditional delicacy in parts of China and Southeast Asian countries. Uh, it's a, gone back thousands of years that the, the ancient emperors used to, to eat things like this, uh, bird's nest soup and shark fin soup to display dominance over the natural world. But since the 1980s, when there's been this huge economic boom in, in China, there's a lot of newly rich people that want to say, look, I'm as rich as the emperor, I'm serving this. And shark, so shark finning is a fishing technique in which fishermen catch a shark cut the fins off of that shark while their boat is still at sea and discard the carcass of the shark at sea. If the shark's still alive, it'll bleed to death or drown over the course of about an hour or two. Uh, this, is, this is understandably quite inhumane. It's widely condemned, uh, but it also does not mean what a lot of people think it means. And it's also not happening in very many places anymore because of successful environmental campaigns in the 80s and 90s. And to give you one example of this just being absolute nonsense that clogs my social media feeds as well as my arteries, uh, there is a several times a year, there's a petition that goes viral on social media from some scuba diver somewhere that bans shark finning in Florida. Shark finning is an atrocity. It's why so many shark species are in trouble. We need to ban it at least here in Florida if we can't ban it in the whole world. And these get tens of thousands of signatures. Uh, and None of those people or the people who made the petition seem to know that we banned shark finning in Florida in 1993. Um, So this is a petition that cannot possibly do anything to help anything. All it does is waste people's time and energy and spread confusion about what the problems are. So it drives me just insane. So I'm kind of interested to know, and maybe you don't have the answer to this, how this definition became so precise, because it seems clear to me that a lot of the public doesn't quite understand the precision of what the term shark finning is for. I'm assuming a lot of people it's, are it's using it more It's from international management treaties and fisheries regulations. So where did it come from? Was there a a period where it was just happening a lot, this sort of precise thing of people going out, cutting fins off sharks, and then dumping the carcasses? Well, they're still alive at that point. Back in the ocean? 70s, 80s, 90s. It was, was, you know, with some, this largely stopped within, it started shortly before I was born and ended while, while I was a kid. It was to fulfill this increased demand 
uh, for shark fin soup associated with the Chinese economic boom of the of the early 80s. And uh, there was a yeah, there was a term for it in terms of international negotiations and treaties and fisheries management rules and stuff like that. You find that there's a lot of hyper precise terminology uh, whenever you get into legalese policy negotiations. And it's something that when I, when I talk to members of the public, especially members of the scuba community, many of whom are not professional scientists, but they love the ocean and they want to help, uh, they are being actively misled about what this means, why it's a problem and how they can help. And it's it's not great. So setting aside for a second, the precise definition of shark finning, um, which is precise for, like you say, legalese reasons, and that came from a certain time and place where there was a concern about the inhuman treatment of sharks in that particular way. Um, today is the idea of sharks being killed for their fins exclusively still a problem? Does it contribute significantly to the overfishing? Or is that just um, sometimes one of the things we eat from sharks is their fins, but not exclusively their fins? Yeah. So there are here in the US, uh, most of the shark fisheries are primarily for meat and they sell fins as a, as a secondary product. Um, and that is what much of the goal of the stop shark finning movement was in the 1990s. It was, this is so wasteful and inhumane. Uh, and it also makes it harder for fisheries managers to know what's been caught if you just have a pile of disembodied fins you know, in your, your cargo hold. Use the whole shark, sell the meat to, and things like that. Um, so this is a success story that by people who just started becoming casually aware of it, believe that it's a loophole that's being exploited by evil and bad fishermen. Um, and that's not true or helpful. Is being, are there sharks being killed primarily for their fins in the world today? Sure but a lot fewer than there used to be. And there are more, and a, and, and a trajectory is going up of sharks being killed for their meat. I'll also note that I've spoken to some environmental activists who have said that they find a bowl of shark fin soup to be repulsive, repugnant, evil, but a grilled mako shark steak, they say, oh, that's fine. That's how normal people eat fish. And I'll note that in addition to not being particularly helpful from a conservation biology perspective, either way, you've got a dead shark, that's also super racist. Definitely. Um, it reminds me a lot of the conversations in Canada about um, baby seal clubbing that come up yeah. periodically, uh, which have a similar kind of taste to them, which is targeting specifically a group seen as other um, for yeah. a practice or a culinary tradition or a hunting practice that is seen as unsavory to the group in power. It, it really, when um, you think about that, it really has the same kind of flavor to it, doesn't it? Yes. And a thing that I say on Twitter uh, is if your shark conservation activism involves you yelling at China and Japan for sharks and soup, but doesn't have you yelling at Spain and Portugal for overfishing of mako sharks, you don't want to save sharks. You just want to yell at Asian people. Right. It's a tricky thing, conservation. Um, I mean, this also leads us to the conversation of, uh, which I think is really important, the idea of um, conservation versus the ethical treatment of animals. And those things yeah. can, can work together, but they can also work against each other. Yes. Um, so the, the animal welfare movement, 
is, has an important role to play in the history of ocean conservation. Uh, certainly lots of the early anti-shark finning activism focused on not the fishery sustainability of it, but the fact that it made animals suffer. But there are lots of areas where animal welfare and the goals of population level uh, conservation or species level conservation are in conflict. And to give you an example of this, I talked to some animal welfare guy once who said that it would not bother him if a species went extinct if uh, the, the individual animals did not suffer on their way out. And that is just not my philosophy of how to save the planet. Right. Different goals and different ways of achieving those goals. Um, and sometimes they are very easy to confuse for each other. And th that isn't to say that animal welfare concerns are bad, just sure. different. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the conservation effort and what the different strategies are, what the policies are that potentially could make a dent here, as well as some of the stuff that maybe isn't worth doing. Um, so I think probably to frame the conversation, let's start by acknowledging something that a lot of people hate to acknowledge, which is we have limited resources. Um, yes. You can't, can't save-, can't save everything, can't fix everything. Yeah, can't save everything all the time. And that is an unfortunate reality of the world we live in. And it's not just always about money. Um, it's also about attention. It's about time. Um, it's about effort and energy as well. There just is limited resources. Um, and that means we have to make choices, sometimes really hard choices, about the activities and the actions we can take. Yeah. And there are what is the correct policy solution depends on a lot of things, including what specific problem we're trying to fix. Right. The problems associated with bycatch are different from the problems associated with habitat destruction. Uh, for example, there's no one size fits all policy, different local values and local laws matter here. Different species face different threats or respond to solutions in different ways. So this gets very technical very quickly. And that's a, another big reason why I wanted to write the book. A lot of the other sort of popular science books about sharks that are out there just will be about fun facts about sharks and then mention at the end, like sharks are in trouble and they need your help to port this bill that's in Congress now that by the time you read the book is not in Congress anymore. Right. And that's not especially helpful. So in the book, I systematically go through a couple dozen different policies uh, along with where they work, where they don't work, the evidence behind them, what sort of data needs they have, the pros and cons of each, what groups tend to support or oppose each. Uh, and that's never been done before in a book for a general audience. And there are a lot of different policies. You can be forgiven for not knowing that. I did an analysis of how shark conservation was portrayed in mainstream media uh, over the last decade. We read about 2,000 newspaper articles from around the English-speaking world and overwhelmingly, one or two policies got almost all the attention, and it's not the policies that are most widely supported by experts or the ones with the most evidence that they work. Can you maybe give us one or two examples of where this kind of nuance becomes really important? Yes. So marine protected areas are a really important one. That's a bit of a hot topic now in ocean policy world. Um, these are like underwater national parks. They're areas where Ideally, all natural resource extraction, including fishing, is banned. In some cases, 
it's just natural gas or oil exploration that's banned. In some cases, it's only some types of fishing that are banned, but it's a protected area in the ocean. And so many of these are just lines on a map that don't actually do anything because there's no actual implementation. There's no enforcement. Sometimes people are just poaching uh, because they know they won't get in trouble. Sometimes there's been so little public outreach about it that people genuinely don't even know that what they're doing is illegal. Um, a marine protected area that is well designed and well implemented and well enforced can be absolutely a huge part of the solution in protecting the ocean. But so many are not well enforced, are not well implemented, are not well designed. Uh, there, there are a lot actually where they say like the goal of this marine protected area is to protect this particular endangered species and it doesn't live there. Uh, so you, it cannot possibly do any good, but it generates brief positive publicity for the government in question. And it's such an easy quote unquote win. It it has that, like, it looks great, right? It's sharks protected mm -hmm. here, but if no sharks frequent that area, yeah, it's a cheap win, but it doesn't mean anything. And most people don't really know what kinds of, in particular in the ocean, what kinds of animals frequent that area. So it, it's, it's such a complicated thing, even to just designate an area. Um, I, I was also interested in the book when you talked about the complications of, because a lot of um, in particular, sharks that are endangered are very migratory. So a small area, well, it might seem like a big area to a person standing on a cliff looking out at this protected area, but to a migratory shark, it's a very small amount of space. It doesn't really do a lot of good if the shark just briefly passes through that area on a much larger migratory journey. Yeah, there are. Um, so some of the satellite GPS satellite tagged tiger sharks that my PhD lab tagged, um, they're what's called core habitat use area. It's a technical statistic that you can calculate from telemetry data. It's the size of a billion football fields. Massive. These animals go on multi-thousand mile migrations every year. One, we t one was tagged off the Bahamas. It swam to Canada and then to Portugal and then back to the Bahamas. So the whole damn North Atlantic Ocean. Right. Uh, and if you protect a bay, that's good that you're protecting it. But if the animal spends 99.9% .9 of its time not there, how much good did you actually do for that species? One of the other challenges that was interesting to read about that is different from on land conservation is... Um, in areas where we're creating protective corridors, uh, quite often you can shift terrestrial species a little bit to a slightly different path, right? Like this path, very difficult for us to protect. But if we shift them, you know, a mile this way, then this we can carve out a protection for. Um, this is made really complicated and not useful in the ocean because a lot of the migratory paths are things we can't shift, like major ocean currents can't shift that exactly, current. Yeah. <laughs> So in corridor ecology on land, uh, it's about for the large animals that migrate, like the bears you mentioned earlier, uh, having just a patchwork of protected areas, but no way for the animals to get between them safely is no good. So we have these protected corridors uh, where there's trees or whatever habitat they need uh, that are found throughout there. And you can put those basically anywhere and the bear will sort of figure it out. That doesn't work in the ocean because, as you say, they're following these major ocean currents, and we can't move those. Sometimes our shipping lanes are along the major ocean currents for the same reason that sharks use them, 
because it takes less energy to go far. So complicated. And also things like navigating jurisdictions of protection is more complicated on in the ocean than it is on land. I mean, I'm sure there's complicated overlapping jurisdictions on the land as well, but land tends to be at least owned and managed by a single state, right? Like there's a sort of uh, it feels like maybe it's a very slightly easier problem to solve. But as soon as you get to the ocean, once again, you have these kind of overlapping jurisdictions where you have a municipality and then a state or a region and then a country. And then there's like international waters to also contend with, which just puts this very complicated jurisdictional language over everything. Yeah, if you have a species that sort of lives right on the border of, say, the, the waters of the United States and Mexico, uh, and it's fully protected in the U.S., but not protected at all in Mexico, and it spends about half its time in each place, that species is in trouble. So we need these what are called multilateral agreements. And then you have the, the so-called high seas, what we now call areas beyond national jurisdiction in more legalese terms. Um, there are rules there. There's this per- perception in the public that anything goes once you get out far from shore and there's no laws and there's no enforcement and you can do whatever you want. And that's never, that's really never been true, but certainly not true now, but certainly it's more complicated now. You need international agreements, the treaties between countries that establish these, what are called regional fisheries management organizations that set the rules for those areas. I imagine with those kinds of international jurisdictions, one of the, I mean, there's many problems and many challenges there. Diplomacy is one of them and just getting an agreement, but also enforcement of uh, of environmental protections in those places must be a real challenge for lots of different reasons. Yes. A lot of it's done via satellite. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of it's done via technology. Uh, But yeah, it's tricky for sure. Like if you see if someone's speeding down the highway, then a, a sheriff or a police car can pull them over. If someone's a thousand miles from shore and they're doing something wrong, what if there's no boat nearby? Um, so it's definitely it's definitely harder. But we know that that boat is eventually going to come back to shore. Um, ideally, we know who owns it and where they work and all of that good stuff. But yeah, every, all of this gets more complicated very quickly once you leave land. And of course, the always complicating feature of any conservation effort is people. Um, The policies typically encroach on people, people's access, people's ability to fish, people's ability to do things uh, that they at least currently think that they should do or think that they should be able to do. Um, And I think a thing, and I'm so glad you pointed out in the book that people often forget, is that if you cannot get people on board with a policy, your policy is doomed to fail. Yes. And a thing that's been found across different study systems in any sort of environmental management is that people are more likely to agree with decisions made at a table if they felt they had a seat of that at that table and their concerns were fairly listened to, regardless of what the actual outcome of the discussion is. If people feel like they had a voice in the discussion, they, they, even if they disagree with the decision, they understand how the decision was made. They are more likely to follow those rules. But we have so many cases where people just get top-down um, government control coming in and saying, you can't do this anymore. Sorry. You have no say. We're not listening. It's done. 
And those rules are made for a good reason. It's because an endangered species or another important natural resource is otherwise in danger of overexploitation or extinction. But it matters how we make the rules. It matters how we set the policies. It matters how we communicate with the people affected by them. And not just in terms of ethics and right or wrong, but in terms of efficacy, that if you want people to actually listen to what you're saying, you need to say it in a way that uh, they're where they feel like they're understood. A lot of this is listening more than you talk, which is something that a lot of scientists are not very good at. To be fair, a lot of people aren't very good at that. <laughs> yeah. It's fishing and fishing conservation and ocean conservation. It's an interesting challenge on a lot of fronts that we've talked about. And it's fishing is particularly a weird one, it feels like, because most of the land-based animals we eat aren't endangered. Our farming of them may be endangering other creatures by taking over habitats and things like that. But fishing, it it intersects with food security for a lot of people and, a, and lots of countries in a particularly complicated way. They're Fishing is a matter of economic and, in some cases, literal survival for people. So we have to balance conservation efforts with an understanding that that's a reality of people's lives. That's that's part of the reason why these movies like Seaspiracy are so harmful, uh, that they just say, this is easy, just stop eating fish and everything's fine and the ocean will be fixed. Well, you just condemned hundreds of millions of people to starvation. Uh, so that's not a great solution. Yeah, that solution maybe is okay for a Western country, for North America, where there are a lot of people's food isn't based on fish, but there's a lot of places in the world where that's just not true. If you remove fish from the food equation, there's not a lot left for those people to eat um, because that's what their culture, that's what their state, that's what their place has lived off of for years and years and years. It's not as simple as, please stop eating fish, eat something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of places, they can't just go to Whole Foods and get a kale salad from the salad bar for lunch. Right. Uh, not everybody has a vibrant, um, you know, beef or chicken or farming industry, their industry that feeds their people is fishing. And that is both on a large scale, but also a, a small scale in remoter parts of the world where there isn't even an industrial food complex there. So it's it's really complicated. And there is no, I think you say it in the book, there's no silver bullet policies. Everything has to be thought yeah. through very carefully. And there's a lot of smaller things that you need to tackle specific problems. Absolutely. So can you give us some examples of um, maybe in particular in the shark world where policies have made a difference? Yeah, we are starting to see off the east coast of the U.S., the southeast coast of the U.S., some species are starting to recover. Uh, since the 1990s, when these science-based fisheries management plans were put into place, uh, the, the, return to the return to both California and Cape Cod of great white sharks. Uh, is, an, is, an, is a success story, though certainly a complicated one because people go in the water there and occasionally there are bites. But yeah, absolutely. We, we have shown that if you fix it, it gets fixed. Uh, it, it takes a while because these animals have so, few, have so few babies. But yes, we know that there's absolutely evidence of things working. 
Can you talk about any specific policies and what some of the sort of more targeted policies have been that have shown promise? Sure. So generally speaking, when we talk about a sustainable science-based fisheries management plan, um, that is something that incorporates a lot of science. What, how many of the animals are there? When are they there? How many of them are there? How many babies do they have? How often, how many of them naturally die in a typical year uh, with the, the needs of a fishery? And then you, what you get is saying, all right, well, you, the fishery can take 10,000 tons of this species out of the ocean every year and the population will be okay. Uh, so this gets, this gets complicated and mathy and legalese very quickly. I read a lot of these fisheries management plans for work and they're possibly the most technical and dull document in the known universe, but they, they incorporate a lot of data and we know that they, we know that they work if they're done right. What about technology solutions? Uh, what places can we improve even just fishing practices rather than putting in limits or targets um, to reduce in particular things like bycatch, which can be problematic? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that we can modify fishing gear to reduce bycatch. Uh, I, this is something that one, one of my day jobs is looking at this. So I'm fascinated by this idea in particular. Um, but sometimes it's using a different material for the hook, which means that if a tuna bites that hook, it can get, it'll get stuck and caught. But if a shark bites that hook, it'll bite through and swim away fine. Uh, sometimes it's taking advantage of the special abilities that sharks have. They can sense electromagnetic fields, whereas other fishes cannot, which means that if a shark approaches one of these hooks with the, the rare earth metal magnet on it, they'll feel this sensation of, of just weird and hopefully swim away, but a tuna won't notice anything's wrong at all, and they'll get bitten on the hook. Sometimes it's just a matter of where and when you fish, or how deep. If there are tuna all the way in the same numbers from the surface to 500 meters, and the sharks all hang out at 400 to 500 meters, if you fish in just the top 200 meters of ocean, you'll catch the same amount of tuna and no fewer sharks, or and a lot fewer sharks. So there's a lot of things we can do differently. But notably, this is, is very species and fishery specific. Um, if it, some, of, some folks who have been following environmental issues for a long time may have heard of the turtle excluder device. This was a big thing in the 1990s with shrimp trawls in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they used to catch sea turtles and kill a lot of sea turtles. And it was actually a fisherman who developed this turtle excluder device, which is a heavy trap door in the net that a sea turtle is heavy enough to trigger, but a, um, a bunch of shrimp aren't. So if a sea turtle gets caught in the net, the net opens and the turtle can get out. If shrimp get caught in the net, they, they get stuck. So there's a lot of technology here, um, but it's, it's very, uh, very species and situation specific. Yeah. And of course, one of the challenges is if you're looking to try and make sure a sea turtle can get out of a net or that you're not, you're reducing, say, uh, thinking of a particular example, uh, you want to prevent dolphins from being caught as bycatch, you can save some dolphins, but inadvertently cause problems for other species that, uh, so yeah, maybe if you want to tell the dolphin bycatch story a little bit, cause I don't think a lot of people know this. I certainly didn't. Um, and I think it's a really telling example of how, uh, complicated this kind of thing can be because by looking at solving, if you sometimes by solving a too specific problem, you can cause other problems. And if you're not paying attention, you sort of need to keep track of everything at once. Yes. 
So dolphin safe tuna is an, another commonly misunderstood term. And this, the Seaspiracy movie willfully misrepresents what it's supposed to mean and how well it's working. Uh, but basically, how, how most tuna is caught, uh, most of the, the canned tin tuna that you get, is with these giant nets that are called purse stains. And a, a small boat deploys the net around a school of tuna, and then you draw the purse strings, and the net closes at the bottom. Um, the problem here is you can't just put this randomly. You have to go where the tuna are. And it's hard to tell where the tuna are because they live under the water where you can't see them. And the old way that people used to do this is they would look for dolphins breaching at the surface because dolphins feeding indicate there's probably tuna feeding down below. So they would draw the nets around this and this would catch a lot of tuna, but would also kill some of those dolphins. Uh, dolphins, this inspired a lot of outrage, although it's important to note that the dolphins being killed here were not an endangered species at all. Their numbers are fine. If you want to say a, the life of a dolphin is worth more than the life of a shark, that's another discussion. But these are absolutely not endangered species of dolphins. And this inspired large-scale public outcry, and it led to dolphin-safe tuna, which is tuna caught not doing that. It doesn't mean that no dolphins are ever caught. It wasn't supposed to mean that. It wasn't designed to mean that. It means they're not doing what are called dolphin sets, which are finding dolphins and deploying nets around them. Uh, another way of finding tuna is uh, by helicopter or plane uh, looking for tuna from above. And that's what's, what's done some of the time now. Or also, you bring the tuna to you with what's called a fish aggregation device. Uh, these are sometimes quite high tech. They're sometimes just literally sticks tied together. But if you put any hard surface in the ocean, stuff flocks to it because they're not used to seeing hard surfaces. And then you d deploy these fish aggregating devices, and in a few days or a few weeks, you set your net around them. The problem is that does attract tuna, but it also attracts a lot of other things, including endangered species. So by switching to dolphin-safe methods, it's been harder and worse for a lot of other things that are not dolphins. Um, and also, all the while, people with some people willfully misrepresenting dolphin safe and saying this dolphin safe tuna still kills dolphins. Everyone's lying to you. Like, no, they're not. That's just not what the word means. <laughs> I don't know who to be mad at in that particular example. I feel like I'm I should at, be mad I'm at mad somebody, at but I don't know all who. The time. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest challenges is where there's no sort of specific place to put blame there. Uh, although yeah, I'm particularly correct. annoyed at the advertisers who are leveraging that to just sell more tuna. Um, yep. That for me feels like a good candidate at the moment. Um, the but, most sustainable tuna, if people in particular love tuna and want to go for it, is uh, is a pole and line cost. Mm -hmm. That's catching one tuna at a time. Uh, you can buy that at Whole Foods um, and a few other major retailers. But watching a video of this is just fascinating because they go into these giant schools of tuna and there's just a bunch of guys on the back of a boat with rods and reels and they're catching a tuna like every 30 seconds and throwing them behind them. It's fascinating to watch. Uh, but that's super sustainable. Uh, it's not that much more expensive. Uh, and you know, I, like many other people, love tuna, so it's nice to be able to, to still eat it. I did not know that there was a method of fishing tuna that was like that. That's really interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't have expected that to be, is that tuna significantly more expensive or not really? Uh, it, it, sorry, say again. I just wondered how much more expensive is that 
tuna caught that way because it sounds like a much more inefficient way to catch tuna, but maybe they'll just bite at anything you throw in them. It's less than twice as much. Um, it varies a lot. There's so many different kinds of tunas that are out there. Mm. Uh, there's so many, but um, less than twice as expensive. And and the the regular canned tuna is so cheap that when we're talking about doubling the cost of it, it's still you know more reasonable than a fast food cheeseburger. Right. So if you're a person who can afford to buy, you know, who, who lives a sort of westernized life and is fairly comfortable, you can probably afford that tuna. Yeah, that is a, a it, it's a really important point um, too, just to stress that generally doing something in a more environmentally friendly manner costs more. And we need to keep that in mind. This is There's a lot of discussions about this right now with electric vehicles and the cost of gas. And there's some of my smarmy liberal friends are just saying, well, I have a Prius or I have a, a Tesla, so the cost of gas doesn't affect me anymore. You are not winning the argument here. You are just making people hate who already were annoyed by you annoyed by you about something else. So it, it, we need to help people to understand that it matters how we do things and that doing things the right way costs more and help make it more affordable to do that. Yeah, it's it's a thing I think, especially uh, educated middle and upper class liberals forget that the options that I have open to me to make different choices about my purchases that feel more sustainable are definitely not open to everybody and arguably not open to most people. Yeah, for sure. So what can the average everyday person do? I'm not a politician. I don't make policy. I care about the oceans. I care about sharks uh, and uh, all other endangered species. Uh, but let's say I care about sharks specifically because uh, I do. I really I've read a lot about sharks since watching Jaws, and I really like them. And I'm going to read more. Um, what What are some good actions for me to take? Yeah, the single most important an effective thing that an individual consumer can do to help the whole ocean, including sharks, but not limited to sharks, is don't eat unsustainable seafood. I, again, I'm not saying you have to give up all seafood and everyone has to become vegan and eat only at um, Whole Foods, but there are certainly some fishing practices that are environmentally harmful. Don't support those. Uh, that's a huge thing that people can do to help. Also, donate time and time or money to reputable nonprofits while not supporting the scam artists, follow experts on social media. I share specific ways that people can help on my social media at Why Sharks Matter, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram uh, several times a year whenever something comes up. Uh, if you're a U.S. citizen, and there are opportunities to comment on proposed federal uh, register notices, which are uh, nationwide laws and policies and plans to protect the ocean. The median number of comments submitted in support of shark conservation uh, on these is zero, whereas the banned shark finning in Florida, even though that already happened in 1993, gets 50,000 signatures. It drives me insane. Um, yeah. So that, there are a lot of things that you can do to help. And I also go through in the book a lot of things that people are, are doing that does not help very much. Basically, don't reinvent the wheel poorly on your own. Listen to the experts, support the experts. So when it comes down to the thing you said that's probably the most within my power to do, which is to select, make sure that I'm eating sustainable 
uh, seafood. How do I tell what are some good ways for me to do the research or be able to tell when I'm grocery shopping or looking for seafood, the difference between um, seafood that was caught sustainably and seafood that wasn't? Assuming that you don't want to read one of these 300-page legalese uh, stock assessments every time you're at the grocery store, which I can totally understand. That's a fair uh, assessment. Are, are, I probably uh, don't want to do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's honestly worth checking out one of these if you're someone who's curious and nerdy about this, just to get a sense of how complicated it is. But certainly don't read one every time you're at the grocery store. That's insane. Uh, you, you can, the more you learn about these issues, you'll get a sort of a general sense that this type of fish is probably unlikely to be environmentally friendly costs. There are also what are called consumer guides. The Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch is a good one of these. You can download their free app and tell it where you are. And it says, here are the hundred or so most common seafood items in your area. These are green. You can eat this guilt-free. It's caught in an environmentally friendly way. These are yellow. Every once in a while, it's probably not that bad. And these are red, which is maybe order the chicken. Got it. So quite often, does this boil down to specific types of fish? Types of fish, where they're caught, how they're caught, what gear. If you look at the Seafood Watch website, this is something that my Arizona State University marine biology students always remark on. They had no idea it was this complicated. I have them do a lab where they go to their local grocery store and pick 10 seafood items at random and use the Seafood Watch tools to determine if they're sustainable or not. And a lot of times the answer is there's not enough information available to be able to tell. Like this is red snapper. Red snapper caught in this way in this place is fine. Red snapper caught in this way in this place is bad. And it doesn't say how it was caught or where. So what do I do? Like that, I would say in that case, maybe order the chicken. Right. So sometimes if you don't have enough information to make a good choice. If you don't, yeah. Make a If you don't choice. have enough information, it's a bad sign. Because uh, mm -hmm. remember, the, the more environmentally friendly fishing methods cost more. So if a, if a grocery store or a restaurant can charge you more for something because it's better quality, they'll tell you that. Um, and if they're not doing that, that's probably a bad sign. Does Do some of these websites provide international information? So if people are traveling or uh, like a lot of our listeners, we've got a, a large number of listeners in the US, but we've also got a large number of listeners in Canada, in the United Kingdom, in Australia. Um, do different a lot places of these... have different regional guides. Um, the Seafood Watch is primarily US focused. Mm -hmm. There's something called OceanWise in Canada. There's the Marine Conservation Society of the United Kingdom in the UK. Um, I'm going to get hate mail over this, but I forget what the one in Australia is called. Uh, there's also uh, a global organization that I work for part-time at the moment called the Marine Stewardship Council, where that little blue check mark that looks kind of like a fish, uh, if you see that, that means that that seafood has passed a, a rigorous um, science-based sustainable fishery standard. You're more likely to encounter that at the grocery store than at a restaurant. That's just the, the place we typically operate. Got it. So there are some general rules of thumb, and it does sound like uh, this kind of strategy will work in places outside the US as well. You just have to do a little research to figure out what the best tool or website is for, for where you live or where you're visiting. Yep, for sure. Awesome. Is there anything else you want people to take away from your book? I'm thinking of the, like, if someone's only going to remember one thing or take away one thing from the book, what would you hope that is? I would like people to understand that we are better off with healthy shark populations off our coast than we are without them because of the valuable ecosystem services they provide. But they, many species face serious challenges and they need our help, but it matters 
how we help. There are some strategies that work and some that don't. And there are some people pushing for strategies that don't for their own agendas that are unrelated to Shark. So try to help, but make sure you're paying attention to how you're helping and that some help can actually hurt if we're not careful. Yes, correct. David, thank you so much for your time today. It was a really interesting book uh, and it's been a great conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. And if you want to learn more about sharks, David, his books, or his research, we have links, as always, to get you started in the show notes for this episode, available on your podcast listening device of your choosing, and of course, on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 